0: Welcome to the AKC podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Morning, everybody or oh, good afternoon or evening depending what time it is where you are. Um, my name is Nicholas Rose, I'm a professor of sociology in the department of global health and social medicine uh, here at King's and I'm also the co-director of King's's Centre for Society and Mental Health which may seem rather strange to you given that the title of my talk is against quotes mental health but I hope that by the end of this short presentation you'll get an idea of why it is that I've chosen that title. Perhaps the best place to start is by asking what is mental health? What do we talk about when we talk about mental health? Well, here's the World Health Organization's definition. I quote: Mental health is not just the absence of mental disorder, it's defined as a state of well-being in which each individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life and work productively and fruitfully and is able to make a contribution to his or her community, Close quote. Well, gosh, I mean, that's quite a high bar. Um, and uh, given that definition, I'm not sure who of you would consider that you were in mental health. The language of mental health has come very much to the fore over the last few years, and it's been especially prominent recently in debates about the pandemic, which many consider to be a huge threat to our mental health. We're now aware of mental health problems, as we've never been before. There are many stories about mental health in the media, and even more, as I've just said, uh, over this last period. There are predictions of experts equipped with their surveys and scales. One recent survey suggested that in the future up to 10 million people would require specialist mental health services as a consequence of the pandemic and the lockdown and even before the pandemic there were mental health campaigns such as the annual mental health awareness week There were campaigns for mental health in football. Uh, There were campaigns for mental health in all sorts of other regions of our life. And most recently, us in the UK might have been struck by Prince William and Kate urging the nation to look after their mental health. So who could be against mental health? Who could be against mental health and the language of mental health and the problem of poor mental health especially during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. Who could dispute that health workers were in an incredibly stressful situation, forced to practice in exhausting and dangerous conditions, often without adequate protective clothing, caring for the sick, many of whom are dying? Who could doubt that those who are isolated in cramped living spaces, who are juggling the demands of kids and domestic responsibilities, facing the threat of unemployment, struggling with uncaring benefit systems, facing the real threat of penury if they don't manage all those competing demands, who could doubt the pressures upon them? Who could doubt the pressures on their kids? Uh, now not going to school or sometimes going to school and coming back from school because someone has been diagnosed with COVID, not with access to uh, the internet, with inadequate uh, facilities, no a laptop, a mobile phone that doesn't really work to learn on. Who could doubt that those kids were encountering major distress in their lives and often feeling very upset. And who could fail to worry about the fate of those frontline workers who we know have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic, who continue to empty bins, to make deliveries, to perform all those other services on which those of us who are not frontline workers depend. But are these mental health problems? What's in that word, mental health? Well, those of us who've looked And even those of us who've not looked at the history of of, uh, of psychiatry or of mental disorders, uh, listen to plays, read novels will be very aware of the fact that we have had a number of words and a number of different types of language to describe those forms of distress that now are called mental health problems. Madness, melancholia, lunacy, insanity, A lunatic asylum, a mental illness, a mental disorder, a mental hospital. And now, over the last 30 years or so, I guess, the language of mental health has come to dominate all of those. People even talk about mental health disorders. I've read mental health illnesses and mental health hospitals. But that raises the question which I want to sort of pose to you today, which is, in what sense is mental distress a matter of health? Or what happens when you make mental distress a matter of health? You place it in the domain of medicine, health and illness, those are matters which uh, doctors deal with, or other experts of uh, of, uh, pathological conditions. We place ourselves, therefore, in the care of those experts, doctors or other uh, mental health professionals. And in thinking of it as a matter of health, perhaps we think of a mental health problem as an illness like any other. An illness which is a condition of individuals and those individuals being suitable cases for treatment, therapy or care. As I mentioned, that survey that predicted that 10 million people would be suffering from mental health problems in the wake of the pandemic Also said that those people suffering from those mental health problems would require expert help from mental health professionals, doctors, social workers and many counselors and and many others. So to deem something a mental health problem is to suggest that it is a problem that requires a solution and that that solution requires the application of a certain kind of expertise that we are suitable cases, those of us who suffer mental health problems, for treatment, for therapy, or for care. As I say, who could be against mental health in the time of COVID? When these newspaper articles, these surveys I've mentioned, warn of a tsunami of mental health problems. And it's certainly true that if you look at the surveys, of which there are, are, are many, some good, some bad, um, some compare what's happening now to what happened before. Some just look at what's happening now. Some predict into the future. If you look at these surveys, the conclusion that is widely drawn in most of these surveys is that anxiety is on the rise, that depression is on the rise. And as I said, that children's mental health is especially a problem as and as is in danger. And the consequence of those arguments are often quite uh, political with a small p. We need to fund more mental health services. Our current mental health services are a disgrace. Uh, We don't have enough professionals to deal with these problems. Mental health is still a Cinderella condition and so on. Well, I think one might agree with all those little p political questions. Certainly mental health services are underfunded, Uh, certainly um, mental health professionals are stretched to the limit and beyond the limit. Certainly, people who have existing uh, problems of, uh, of of mental disorder are struggling to get access to their services. All that is true, but what's at stake here in calling all this a question of mental health? Now, it's certainly true that in the time of COVID, many people experienced distress, and that is entirely understandable. Indeed, it would be bizarre if they didn't, given everything that's happened to our lives, the way in which we live, the way in which we organise our days and weeks, the way in which we manage everything from shopping to looking after our kids. It would be strange if we weren't a bit distressed by all that. But what's less clear is that these feelings are mental health problems, or that for the majority of those who feel this way, they will lead to enduring difficulties in all those dimensions that the WHO, as we showed at the beginning, terms mental health. Indeed, similar predictions in relation to other crises, for instance, uh, at the start of the 1939 to 1945 war, or in relation to a 9-11 attacks in New York in the United States, similar predictions about long-term mental health consequences have proved to be unfounded. But let's now have a closer look at how these understandable feelings get to be reframed as mental health problems. Let's take one example, uh, a very reputable example from uh, researchers at University College London who've been carrying out surveys on the mental health consequences of COVID and the pandemic and publishing reports on a weekly basis. And you can see on the left-hand side of the screen, the way in which they are uh, mapping the rise and fall in levels of uh, anxiety and depression uh, over week by week in in the crisis. Um, and on the right-hand side, they tell you how they did it. Uh, We're just going to focus on depression for for the moment. Respondents were asked about depression levels during the past week using the Patient Health Questionnaire, the PHQ-9, a standard instrument for diagnosing depression in primary care. There are nine items on this scale with a four-point response ranging from not at all to nearly every day and higher overall scores indicating more depressive symptoms scores of higher than 10 can indicate major depression. Then they go on and say how they're going to look at anxiety with a very similar scale uh, called GAD7, which looks at what's called generalized anxiety disorders. And just keep in your mind for a moment of what they say, higher overall scores indicate more depressive symptoms. So what they're looking at here are what they consider to be symptoms of depression. So here's how they do it. So this is what the uh, uh, PHQ-9 looks like. You can see on the left-hand side of the screen that there are a series of questions that are asked and uh, respondents have to rate them uh, as to whether or not they don't feel them at all. They feel them uh, several days every day or nearly every day and so on. Um, And uh, on the right-hand side of the screen is how you should interpret it. And as you'll see down at the bottom uh, of that right-hand side of the screen, uh, you are uh, advised as to how to translate the scores into levels of a uh, mental health condition, uh, perhaps even a psychiatric diagnosis uh, called uh, depression. Um, and the higher your score, uh, the, the more severe your depression is. So let's have a look at these questions then and ask ourselves, who do you think would be most likely to answer yes to these questions during COVID? And I've just uh, taken the questions and put them here on this slide uh, so you can see them a little bit more clearly. Little interest or pleasure in doing things, feeling down, depressed or hopeless, trouble falling or staying asleep or sleeping too much, feeling tired or having a little energy, poor appetite or overeating, uh, feeling bad about yourself, trouble concentrating, moving or speaking slowly, thoughts that you would be better off dead or hurting yourself. Let's leave that last one to, to one side for a moment. So... I would uh, suggest to you that very many of us feel uh, little interest or pleasure in doing things after months of lockdown. Many of us feel down, depressed or hopeless. Many of us have problems falling or staying asleep, feel we have a little energy, have more uh, problems about eating, eating too much or eating too little. And for those people who feel responsibility for, through their work, and through the wages that they bring in, and their capacity to care for their families, uh, that they have let uh, their families down, um, it would be understandable that they'd feel bad about themselves. So who do you think will be most likely to answer yes to these questions? Well, many of us would answer yes to many of those questions, and some of us, as I'll go on to argue, in the most adverse uh, circumstances will be more likely to answer yes to those questions during COVID. Now one of the problems with these surveys that uh, ask people how they're feeling at particular uh, times uh, is that they often fail to put themselves into a historical context and look at how the results today compare with results that they might have found some time ago. As it happens Uh, The Mental Health Foundation carries out surveys very frequently in relation to Mental Health Awareness Week. And if we go back to 2018, well before any of us had heard of COVID, uh, they surveyed over 4,500 adults about their feelings of stress in their lives. And when they did these surveys, asking similar questions to the ones that we have just seen from the UCL survey, they find, is this surprising? Are you surprised? 74% of people say that at some point they felt so stressed that they feel overwhelmed or unable to cope. Remember here, we're not talking about a COVID survey. We're talking about a survey in 2018. Well, life might've been bad in 2018, but it was very different from now. And if you drill down into those, uh, those figures they say over half the adults, that's 51% of those who feel stressed reported feeling depressed and 61% of those reported feeling anxious. So we are in a situation here where if you look at that and compare, uh, compute it with the 74% who say that they felt stressed, etc, 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 we've got about half of the population of adults who, feels, uh, who feel depressed and uh, a bit more who feel anxious. Now one of the points that's been made in some of the surveys is about the number of people who have suicidal thoughts. So again, you may be surprised that in this survey carried out by the Mental Health Foundation, of the adults who felt they had, who said they'd felt stress at some point in their lives, that's 74% of adults, 16% said they'd self-harmed, and 32% said they had suicidal thoughts and feelings. That's 32% of 74%. Well, you can do the math, but that is quite a large proportion of people. What shall we conclude? Even pre-COVID, many people, when asked, report high levels of stress, high levels of depression, high levels of anxiety, and many reported self-harming or suicidal thoughts when asked. So it's by no means clear that these have been exacerbated to a significant extent by COVID. We should be very wary of extrapolating from these current surveys, although we may want to think about what the nature is of our societies uh, that have led to so many people using the language of stress or inability to cope or depression or anxiety to describe how they're feeling. One way or the other, it's clear that a very large number of us, even before the pandemic, are not feeling in a state of mental health as it's defined by the World Health Organization. But it's not clear to me, maybe to you as well, that those very large numbers of people are suitable cases for treatment. And indeed, in the report from the Mental Health Foundation, a number of very sensible uh, recommendations are made. Uh, Very few of them suggest that uh, those people who are in these conditions require individualized treatment by mental health professionals. Many of their uh, recommendations refer to the need to improve the social conditions, improve the working conditions, improve the general levels of uh, of support available within communities if we're going to mitigate these issues on a population-wide level. So as I've already suggested, past experience shows that most human beings are actually much more robust in the face of collective dangers and disasters than are suggested by some experts. It's not that people don't feel depressed. It's not that they don't feel anxious. It's not that they don't feel worried. It's not that they don't feel sad or concerned. Um, But these feelings are understandable feelings in the context in which they find themselves. And the waning of these feelings over time is not a matter of individual psychological traits of resilience. Indeed, evidence shows that resilience in the face of these crises is more likely in situations of high solidarity. So what that means in relation to uh, the evidence and arguments from COVID is to say that what we learn from the past is that feelings of distress arise from particular adverse social situations And that these will resolve for the majority of people if those situations resolve. So what then is gained by turning these things into mental health problems that require intervention by mental health experts? I would suggest that for the majority of people, that is really not where our attention should fall. So rather than thinking that we're about to experience a post-COVID mental health tsunami, I think we need to think differently and look elsewhere. Past experience of crises, political crises, disasters, and indeed pandemics, has shown that most human beings are more robust in the face of collective dangers and disasters. than these predictions suggest That was true in the case of predictions of long-term psychological uh, problems as a result of the total war of 1939 to 1945. It was true also uh, of predictions about the mental health consequences of the 9-11 attacks on the United States and the bombings in London. Researchers have explored these issues and to summarize their arguments, Robustness in the face of these disasters does not arise because of individual strength of character or other psychological traits, but largely when such situations of crisis generate high levels of social solidarity. Feelings of distress arise quite understandably from people's adverse social situations, but they're mitigated by the sense that one is enmeshed in a network of formal and informal social support during that crisis. And after that crisis, if the situations of adversity resolve, so will those feelings of distress. So rather than speaking of a generalized mental health crisis, I suggest we need to focus elsewhere and to think in a different language. Now, what would that different language be? I think it would start from the recognition that the serious and enduring problems driven by COVID, but also driven in the pre-COVID situation, were borne disproportionately by those experiencing disadvantage experiencing disadvantage from social inequities, from gender discrimination, from uh, racial stigma and racialism, racism and from geographical inequalities, those who live in dilapidated housing, in polluted environments with inadequate facilities, who are less able in the uh, current situation to avoid contracting uh, COVID-19 Those who are unable to work from home and can't isolate those who are showing symptoms because they simply don't have the spare room to place them in. Those on zero hour contracts where no work equals no pay and have no financial savings to draw upon will have to continue using public transport despite the risk which places them at further risk of contracting the virus. In other words, there are quite intelligible and indeed predictable and indeed predicted reasons why the impact of COVID-19 on people's levels of distress, as on their levels of uh, likelihood of contracting uh, COVID itself, are highly socially stratified and indeed highly ethnically and racially stratified, especially in big cities. They're ethnically and racially stratified not because of something inherent in the biology of people from minority ethnic communities, but because people from minority ethnic communities are disproportionately placed in these situations of disadvantage. To refer to their feelings and experiences of those in these exposed situations as mental health problems seems to me to be disingenuous in part because it individualizes both those experiences, suggests that that is your experience and you have a mental health problem, and the responses to them in terms of treatment of the problem at the level of that individual. Is it possible to think differently about these things? Well, I suggest it is, and there are some well-established ways in which uh, researchers in this area have uh, begun to think of these problems differently. One is to use the language of social suffering articulated most clearly by uh, cultural anthropologists uh, such as Arthur Kleinman, Vina Das and Margaret Locke. They refer to social suffering as the embodied consequences of the experience of multiple disadvantages grounded in structural social inequality. Inequality is not just a matter of inadequate finances, of having a bad job, of living in bad housing, of living in unpleasant uh, uh, environments and so on. It gets into and marks the bodies and the souls of individuals uh, across their lives. Uh, And it accounts for the excessive levels of morbidity and mortality experienced by those living in these very disadvantaged and adverse circumstances. Johann Galtung, An uh, activist who was very engaged in these kinds of questions puts the matter somewhat more strongly in the term structural violence. He refers to structural violence as the consequences of the economic, political and legal structures and gender discrimination and racism that impair the extent to which individuals can reach their potential. These inequalities have become so embedded in our forms of life that they're usually normalised and invisible. So returning for one second to the WHO definition of mental health, rather than thinking of mental health, and the inability of many of us to reach that bar that they say is the bar to be mentally healthy, one might think of the fact that structural violence makes it entirely inevitable that many people who experience racism, exclusion, discrimination, and the like will find it exceptionally difficult to reach anything like the, that description of what an ideal life is like for, for the World Health Organization. And most of the time, we don't recognize that. It's become normalized and invisible. And one of the things that COVID 19 has done is it's shone a spotlight on these forms of uh, structural violence, on these forms of embedded inequity and their consequences for people's. Uh, uh, levels of physical illness and their consequences for people's uh, mental lives and mental distress. Paul Farmer, professor in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine um, uh, at Harvard University, who's done uh, tremendous work in Haiti and elsewhere uh, in these very, very uh, adverse circumstances, Uh, talks about the limits of clinical medicine when it comes to addressing structural violence. He and his colleagues, and this is a position which would also be taken by colleagues in my own department, which is named after that Harvard department, argue that the predictable and preventable consequences of structural violence on physical and mental health require responses that go far beyond those of clinical medicine to tackle the biosocial and eco-social conditions that cause them. It's not that these things do not get into someone's biology. Of course they do. They are biosocial and eco-social. These conditions of adversity are lived in the body as well as in the management of one's everyday life. So what does that imply? It implies a different way of thinking about the emergence of mental distress. Not a diagnosis of experience, using scales to translate distress into symptoms and scores, and then into a psychiatric diagnosis. But something which in conventional psychiatry is not unknown. Indeed is termed a formulation. What a formulation does, and in the formulation was probably the predominant approach in psychiatry up until uh, the 1980s, uh, what a formulation does was to render a person's distress intelligible, to make it understandable in terms of the challenges of living their lives in the particular circumstances, and also to respond, not by individualising that treatment, but by addressing those challenges. This doesn't mean that medication may uh, not be used. Clearly, medication can provide temporary relief to someone who is in extreme distress, But this approach requires us to seek solutions to things like poverty, like debt, like inadequate welfare benefits and domestic abuse. And it's not just a matter for mental health professionals, because it's not, as it were, a mental health problem individualised in those who are experiencing extreme and enduring distress. It requires those professionals to work with others, to rebuild those networks of social support, both the formal and informal networks of social support. It could mean psychiatrists campaigning for the transformation of pathogenic material environments and obesogenic material environments that underpin many of these difficulties, getting out of the clinic and working with others to transform the social circumstances that lead people into mental distress, rather than focusing on transforming that mental distress into a psychiatric symptom uh, that can be diagnosed and individually treated. So why do we need to reframe the language of the emotions in terms of mental health? Sadness at the loss of lives, worry about catching the virus, anger at incompetence of government, fear of an uncertain future, trepidation at the thought of crowds, guilt about not being able to care for one's loved ones, loneliness, during self-isolation, why should these terms not be enough? Why the imperative to translate them into mental health problems? And what are the consequences? Well, perhaps the easiest way to think about this is in terms um, well set out by the historian and philosopher Ian Hacking uh, in his way of thinking about what he calls making up people. Hacking, like many others, argues that language does not just describe us, it helps constitute us. And in a popular presentation of his argument about making up people, he talks, and I've given the quote here, which I won't go through. uh, He talks about the way in which classifications of people help actually affect the people classified and how these effects on the people in turn change the classification people are kind of mobile targets and what's going on here is what he calls a looping effect people are moving targets because our investigations interact with them and change them and since they're changed they're not quite the same kind of people as they were before the target has moved this is what he calls the looping effect and the way in which sometimes Our sciences, he says, create certain kinds of people that in certain sense did not exist before. And this is what I suggest is happening, or at least one way of thinking about what is happening, by the language of mental health. This is how making up people emerges in Hacking's argument. You first of all create a classification, or in this case a language, the language of mental health. You apply that to a certain group of people, calls them unhappy unable to cope or whatever relatively non-judgmental term you might uh, prefer it's amplified by institutions such as clinics annual meetings of learned societies training programs tv talk shows and the like it's articulated in knowledge the way in which certain things are taught disseminated and refined within the context of the institution And this affects both expert knowledge and as we've seen through its penetration into the media, it affects popular knowledge as well. Indeed, it is actively disseminated by experts or professionals who have generated the knowledge. They judge its validity and they use it in their practice. And after a while, this way of thinking becomes, as he puts it, ossified in institutions. Those institutions give it legitimacy give it authenticity, confirm the status of those who profess it as experts, and those experts study, try to help or advise on the control of the people who are classified as of a given kind. This process is not a process of um, unpleasant individuals. It's not a process which has anything at its heart apart from the wish to help but in the context of this wish to help of the belief that there is a big problem a scandal and that only these experts are able to understand and manage that scandal in the process of doing that the scandal of untreated mental health the scandal of levels of distress that are really mental health problems that should be treated by this expert by these by this class of experts in the process of doing this, they not only create certain types of expertise, but in Hacking's view, create certain types of people, those of us who suffer from mental health problems. Now those of you who are familiar with sociological arguments in the area of mental health and psychiatry will recognise something in my argument that you might call a critique of medicalization. The turning of distress arising from adversity into a medical problem, which I have suggested is going on when we use the language of mental health, may sound like that familiar critique of medicalization, that it turns public problems into private grief, that it turns a social problem into a medical one. It's an act of medical imperialism, expanding the domain of medicine, in this case, the domain of psychiatrists and mental health professionals, where it has no place to be. And often these days, the argument about medicalization is linked to an argument about pharmaceuticalization, the expansion of the role of the pharmaceutical industry, turning everyday uh, distresses, uh, whether it's baldness, whether it's short stature, uh, into diseases uh, and marketing its products as uniquely able uh, to address those diseases, what's called uh, disease mongering. Or perhaps those of you who, whose knowledge of the social sciences goes back further may be reminded of the, the term moral entrepreneurship. Moral entrepreneurs are those who belong to an interest group who claim to detect a scandal. In this case, the scandal of untreated or unrecognized mental health problems that they are uniquely well placed to understand and to address. So is what I'm saying, medicalization kind of critique of medicalization is very familiar now for instance uh, Alan Horwitz and and Jerome Wakefield wrote a a widely read book called the loss of sadness uh, which argues that what's happened especially in the expansion of psychiatry in the United States is the transformation of the sadness consequent upon this uh, disappointments and, and distress in everyday life, the transformation of that sadness into a psychiatric condition called depression, which can be diagnosed and treated with antidepressants. And there has indeed been an absolutely staggering rise across the globe in the use of those drugs which are branded as antidepressants. A similar argument made also by Christopher Lane in relation to shyness, the turning of shyness into a disease. And perhaps most interestingly, A book by Alan Francis called Saving Normal. Now Alan Francis was a a very senior uh, psychiatrist who was placed in charge of the uh, task force uh, revising the previous edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, the DSM-IV. We've just, a few years ago, had the publication of the next version, DSM-5, and Alan Francis became highly critical of the way in which that expanded, expanded and expanded again the number of conditions that uh, could be allocated a psychiatric diagnosis. He called his book Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt, against out of control psychiatric diagnosis, DSM-5, big pharma, and the medicalization of everyday life. So is what I'm saying just a critique of medicalization? This is not the place to uh, go in detail into my own views about those arguments, which I think are very limited. But from our point of view here, what's important is not so much the process that's led to this shift in the ways our ailments are understood, but the consequences for what follows. And in this respect, COVID, the pandemic, and the responses to it have only highlighted something that's not new, but which I think is masked by the language of mental health and mental health problems. This is the disproportionate and inequitable distribution of misery and distress Uh, which is consequent on the experience of social adversity. If one recognises that misery and distress, which is being recoded as a mental health problem, arises from social adversity, then what's needed here is not a matter of mental health awareness, more speaking out about one's problems, more translation of those forms of distress into the language of poor mental health nor do we need a large program of psychiatric research and nor do we need to train up a new army of psychologists and psychiatrists to deal with the consequences of the pandemic. It remains true that some who suffer the most acute problems, especially those who are already undergoing psychiatric treatment uh, for a mental disorder should be able to access specialist psychiatric services access medication when they need it, access talking therapists, But even for those people, such uh, interventions will only be palliative while the conditions that underpin their problems remain unaddressed. In any event, those extreme forms of suffering, conventionally termed the psychoses, have little to do with the forms of unhappiness that are now termed mental health problems. And my own view is that very few of those mental health problems will ever transform themselves into psychotic disorders. To alleviate those forms of distress, the forms of distress which we call mental health problems means addressing the social adversities that lie at their heart in poverty, in bad housing, in racism, in social exclusion, in precarious work and much more. It requires rebuilding both the formal and the informal networks of social support that recognise that the social suffering which anyone experiences is not an individual or an individualised problem, but arises out of shared conditions which those individuals share with others in their communities. There is a role here for mental health professionals, but not in advocating individualized treatment and intervention, but advocating fairly radical social change in alliance perhaps with urban planners, with policymakers, with people devising welfare systems, with people organizing benefit regimes and so on and so forth, stepping out of the clinic and into the social world. And there is a role, a key role, for those who've had lived experience of mental distress in informing and guiding such changes because they have a kind of knowledge from the bottom up which is often impossible to understand uh, if you look at these issues through the perspective, through the glasses of psychiatric or mental health training. Perhaps most fundamentally, in arguing against mental health, I'm suggesting that we shouldn't think of the living of a good, of a worthwhile, of a flourishing life in terms of health at all. I wonder if we can ever avoid today transforming the language of feelings, emotions, of passions into the language of mental health. And I wonder if we can avoid therefore turning ourselves into suitable cases for treatment needing professional intervention in order to return us to uh, fulfilling our social obligations. I wonder if we can find ways to make sense of these feelings of distress without this will to diagnose and treat individuals. And I hope that we can transform the language of mental health so that it directs our attention to social suffering and structural and systematic violence. I don't think our aims should be framed in terms of cure or normalisation, those words that come to mind when we think of health. I don't think they should be thought of in terms of health, as the WHO uh, infam- infamously defines it as "quotes a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being." Health in those terms is a privilege given to few of us and perhaps even not what we need to be able to live a worthwhile life. I think we need to accept that there are many ways of being human. The bandwidth, we need to expand the bandwidth of ways of being human, and to recognise that most human beings most of the time don't live their lives in the silence of their organs, or in a state of eudaimonia, as Aristotle might have put it. They live ordinary lives, lives where they're coping with problems, not coping problems, lives when they're experiencing ups and downs, experiencing sadness, experiencing loss, experiencing anger, experiencing jealousy, grief, and all the rest of it. Those are experiences which are in the nature of the human condition. And they are not experiences which we should seek to erase in the name of complete physical, mental and social well-being. So we should think of our objectives not in terms of the creation or the maximisation of mental health, but in order to try and provide the conditions under which people, always living with others, have the capacities, the capabilities and the resources to understand and manage their lives within the fluctuating circumstances and the fluctuating emotions which they confront every day. Not merely to adapt to these circumstances, but to engage with them, to challenge them and hopefully to transform them. So perhaps our objective should not be mental health, but to enable as many of our fellow citizens as possible to have at least the chance to become the kinds of persons they want to be. And that, to conclude, is part, just a part, of why I am, quote, against the language of mental health. Thanks for listening and thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.